Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. While we're winding down 2018 here at State of the Art, we're planning a lot of awesome new and improved shows for you in 2019, a new format, a lot of interesting stuff. But we decided in the meantime, it would be awesome for us to re-air some of our greatest hits from this year, the first year of our show. So for this week, we decided the one that began it all, at least for me. If, uh, if you guys have been following along from the very beginning, then you'll know that I'm not the first host. I took over for a guy named Ethan Appleby. He's our, our founder and still around doing some of the other stuff here on the show. But uh, in my first interview, I had the good fortune of interviewing uh, a good friend, an awesome artist, and she's an awesome interview as well. Uh, her name is Erica Gangsey, the head of interpretive media at SFMOMA. So keep listening and check out my freshman take, my first interview. All right, so here we are with another episode of the State of the Art podcast. I am Andrew Herman, your brand new host, and I'm super excited to be sitting here with Erica. Is it Gangsy? Is that how Gangsy. you pronounce it? Nice. Yeah. Uh, and we are sitting in the uh, staff offices of SF MoMA, the beautiful office here. Really, really cool. I wish all the listeners could see it, but they can't. Uh, Actually, if you go up to the seventh floor of the museum, you can see basically the same view from the sculpture terrace. So visit us at MoMA, go up to seven, check out the contemporary art, stay for the view. <laughs> Very nice plug. Make sure you get it in there. Word. Uh, cool. So um, Erica, you are the head of interpretive media at SF MoMA, right? That is correct. Um and I actually, it was funny, I was looking over my notes before I came here and I was like, I just assumed it was interactive media. What is the difference between interpretive media and interactive media? Well, so um, in um, 2018, all media is interactive in some way. You know, you queue up videos to play them, you comment on YouTube, you press play on a podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And so calling media interactive is like calling pencils. Uh, <laughs> Marky. Yeah, Marky. <laughs> it's a Marky pencil. Right, exactly. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, actually what's interesting, if you want to get deep into the history of my department for just a moment. So uh, my department's founder, Peter Samus, uh, started in what was then called Interactive Educational Technologies at SFMOMA in 1994. And before that, he'd actually been a curatorial assistant in the painting and sculpture department. And he was using his vacation and comp time in order to build what was then the first CD-ROM about modern and contemporary art wow. ever. So this was back before the web, there were CD-ROMs. And then when Interactive Educational Technologies uh, came on the scene. They were publishing CD-ROMs, and then we we're also the first museum to have a website. And uh, we're creating a suite of digital publications that included audio and video. And at some point, digital storytelling became more than interactive educational technologies could encompass. And so interpretive media is basically the department that produces all of the audio and video components for the larger digital storytelling initiatives that the museum's engaged in. So if you go to our website, you'll see 
essays and stories of all kinds. And then you'll see audio and video stories. And those are what my team produces. So we're essentially a team of in-house media producers. Yeah, very cool. So what, um, so you guys started uh, in <laughs> making CD-ROMs, which is super cool, and with educational material. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of media that you guys are creating. Um, but I also know that, you know, you guys are really investigating the use of a little bit more interesting cutting-edge technology to uh, sort of enhance the experience and 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 sort of in its own creative um you know, its own creative media within the context of MoMA. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about some of those projects? Yeah, I and mean, I can talk about those. You know, I will just say that um, I think that technology is a vehicle, not a destination. And nice. so when we use technology in projects, we try to use it thoughtfully and really think of it as a tool for engagement or, you know, a way to open a path between a visitor and a work of art or a visitor and an artist. And so, you know, we used video back when the ability to digitize video and post it to, you know, first CD-ROMs and then the web was still revolutionary. We were the first museum to have a podcast also, in addition to being the first museum to have a website. It was sort of, I guess, a byproduct of being just a stone's throw away from Silicon Valley is that you have yeah. a lot of opportunity to innovate because partners are available. And so some more experimental projects that we've done, we did a pop-up. It was a mixed reality pop-up arcade in conjunction with the Game Developers Conference in 2017. And that included several projects that had been piloted through a game jam that we'd done using Google's Tango platform, which was an augmented reality platform that actually placed objects into space. So yeah, it was right. spatially aware. So unlike Pokemon Go, which is called augmented reality, but is in fact a flat graphical like sticker right, right, on right, right. top of the camera function of the phone, uh, the new augmented reality technologies are actually spatially aware and sensitive to objects in space. So you can create a Tamagotchi and have it hop up on your sofa and start scratching at the upholstery or whatever, nice. you know, just like a real cat would. Uh, but um, we've been doing some experimentation with augmented reality. We've been doing some some experimentation with virtual reality, so multiplayer VR, but um, all of it has been within the context of a pop-up or a game jam or an experiment. Um, we actually spend a lot of time thinking about this and talking about this, but VR and AR are still in the sort of nascent days of the platforms, and so we haven't fully come to understand what these technologies can be or what the full expressive potential of these technologies is. Like, remember when Vinyl Cut first became pervasive yeah. and everybody had the same filters and the same vignettes on their <laughs> videos? And so there are certain styles that you adapt because a new technology presents them to you. And yeah. then there are styles that you adapt once you become adept with the new technology and with the tools. And I think we're still in the early days of that as far as mixed reality goes and as far as virtual reality goes. But one of the things that I've been really interested in is 
trying to sort of test the institutional tolerance, both internally in terms of curators and artists, and then in terms of visitors for mixed reality projects. You know, can you do a mixed reality project in a museum that is not hmm. dangerous to the art, dangerous to the other visitors, distracting or a menace? Yeah. You know, and so that's I mean, the other reason why these have been significantly time boxed pop-ups that often take place outside of the gallery space. Yeah. Talk, talk to me, um, you use the term dangerous to the art. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, so, I mean, obviously at an institution like SFMOMA, you know, you guys have to have kind of the utmost respect for preserving the creative experience. And, you know, I'm sure that the amount of experimentation you can do while probably more than some other museums is still, you know, you guys are still a museum and you have a certain reputation uphold and stuff like that. Yeah. How do you guys think about, because that's, I think, one of the big debates in the art world forever, even though technology and art have always evolved together, they've always also sort of had tension there. Yeah. Um, so how do you guys think about that? Where is the line for you with danger to the art? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think when you're asking this question, you know, I think that there are possibly two kinds of danger that are worth considering. On the one hand, there's the very real and always present physical danger to an irreplaceable object. Sure. And that is, you know, at its base, what museums are, are collection, collectors of objects and the information that surrounds those objects. Right. And then we, you know, display the objects and share the information that we have, and we try to find new and innovative ways of doing that. And so that's, on the one hand, the very real physical danger, especially when you think about screen-based augmented reality and what where that draws a visitor's attention. So you're but, talking about people just literally walking through a painting. Walking <laughs> through a painting, stumbling over something. And, you know, even just with visitors using their own phones, it's a real physical danger to the art. But then the other kind of danger is the you know, what I would call the spiritual danger, you right. know, the sort of erosion of attention. And, you know, as I said, that erosion of attention is already present when people are engaging with their own devices inside the museum. But philosophically, I'm of the mind that when a human being is standing in front of an original work of art, or if a human being is having an original experience, like, a, you know, going to a performance or something, that that original real-life experience is sacred. Yeah. And to me, when I use technology in an in-gallery context or in a in-museum context, I work to preserve the sacredness of that experience and the presence of that experience. I find that more and more as we have the entire world at our fingertips, we become less attentive to the world that's directly in front of us. And yeah. you know, one of the main technologies that we employ in the galleries is audio. And the reason why is that we're a visual art museum and so we employ audio as an invitation for visitors to put their phones in their pockets and keep their eyes up. Yeah. I think it'll be fascinating, though, like... One of the things that is so inspirational to me about artists and creation is that um, <laughs> while artists will always have an opinion and are, and are often the first to have an opinion on certain things, they're also the best at making use or 
or sort of making the best out of a bad situation. And so, you know, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen, you know, in the VR world, AR world. Um, I think it's a consistent threat, right? Like that, what you said about sort of protecting the sanctity of the experience but it's also going to be really interesting, I think, to see how people can use that creatively in new ways, you know? Yeah. It's funny. We talk about that a lot in my area because a lot of us are actually very mistrustful of new technological innovations. You know, new and shiny isn't always better. And some of our best projects have been built using readily available technologies and simple mm. strategies that have a lot more to do with content strategy than digital strategy. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting about artists, especially, I don't know how to put this. Sorry, I just like disappeared inside my own head. But basically <laughs> the point was something about culture jamming and like, can you use the vocabulary of the system to critique the system or question the system. You know, I wonder about that all the time. You know, can I use an app on a phone in a museum in order to encourage somebody to spend less time looking at their phone and more time looking around while they're at the museum? Or is that, in fact, counterproductive because you're using the very vehicle yeah. of distraction for the engagement opportunity. Yeah. I think the thing that's really interesting about artists is no matter what happens, there's always going to be somebody who finds a way to mess with it or use it wrong. I think artists are really good at using things wrong and using things wrong is an important part of invention and discovery. I mean, the entire history of invention is filled with accidents. I mean, look at penicillin, look at galvanized rubber, you know, so many things that we rely on today and that, you know, founded modern civilization were in fact accidents. And I think that artists are really good at putting themselves in the path of serendipitous discoveries that you can't necessarily... Right plan for. That's that sort of outside of the box thinking. And so you know, when I say that it's the early days of mixed reality, I think one of the things is that the tools for making have not yet become pervasive enough or separated enough from the sort of larger companies that are yeah. invested in the production. Yep. And that as things get further away from the original source, there will be more experimentation and more manipulation. And you know, I'm really interested to see what happens to something like experimental cinema inside of virtual mm. reality or you know, what happens to something like a, an escape room once you have AR goggles. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, the, the Jeff Koons thing? Do you know the story that he... Um, so I think he worked with Google to put up a VR sculpture. Um, and I think it was in Chrissy Field or something like that. And it was immediately virtually vandalized. <laughs> and, uh, they did it by, they, so, oh, it was Snapchat they, that he was working with so that, you know, you could look at, look at it through a lens and, um, Someone just came along and put a bigger, <laughs> a bigger sculpture right on top of it that had graffiti all over it. So I thought that was kind of a cool, um, like immediate 
evolution of the technology because, you know, like, I mean, it's it's cool but kind of cheesy that he puts up this, you know, shiny dog sculpture in virtual reality. And I just love that along came the rascals, like, immediately <laughs> to just, you know, put up their vandalized version right over top of it. But, yeah, um, yeah so I'm curious, do you... So we talk a lot in the general about, you know, fear of technology and, you know, Ludditeism amongst artists. Mm -hmm. How do you personally feel about it? What's your personal opinion on um, on using the use of technology to, to be creative? So here's the thing is I respect all kinds of people and all approaches. I you know, be, I believe in the advancement of creative culture and I believe in creative empowerment. And for some people, that means physical tools, like a pencil and paper. For some people, that means digital tools. Um, I think one thing that's talked about a lot is the idea of a digital native versus a digital immigrant, that mm. millennials are digital natives. They grew up after not just the internet was pervasive, but in a lot of cases came of age after um, the yeah, the internet was in their homes, uh, email, Facebook, and now mobile computing. You, know, you have babies who know how to use an iPad before they know how to talk. But one thing that's not spoken about about a lot is the idea of an analog native or an analog immigrant that, you know, the the binary between a digital native and a digital immigrant implies that we're all living in a digital world. And we are, but I think that a lot of people have dual citizenship. And what's been interesting to me is to see some of the I don't want to call it a backlash. I want to call it a reaction, but a reaction to the ease of certain kinds of platforms and certain kinds of technology. Music being a great example that people are getting into deeper into collecting records and collecting tapes. And one of the things that I really love, you know, my husband has one of the greatest hip-hop tape collections I've ever seen. And one of the things I love about having a tape collection in the house is that it forces you to pause and take a break. If you have a Spotify playlist queued up, you can go for hours and not even notice how much time has passed. And there's mm. something about dividing things into short increments of time and not just dividing things into short increments of time, but dividing things into compartments based on attention that maybe you shouldn't actually have every tool that could possibly be available to you on a tiny pocket screen that for anachronistic reasons we still call a phone <laughs> in your pocket and that basically a yeah. phone is what you have until you decide to get serious about something and once you decide to get serious about art you get a sketchbook hmm. maybe you know, once you decide to get serious about photography, you get a camera. Once, you know, you're not recording this on a phone. You're recording this on right, a proper a audio device, recorder, right. a recording device. And so the idea that we have these multi-purpose devices sort of bleeds over into the way that we compartmentalize our time and our attention so that suddenly everything becomes multi-purpose. I mean, how many times have you picked up your phone for one reason, and eight seconds later, you're on Instagram and you don't know <laughs> why. And I think that one thing I'm hoping to do with 
the technologies that we present at SFMOMA is to be thoughtful about them, but also to really try to provide single-use or single-function technologies instead of trying to provide Swiss Army knife solutions or the thing that's most dangerous, to try to use technology to replace people. Mm. You know, that there's only, you know, I mean, I, I am pretty involved in the games community and I go to a conference called Games for Change. And one thing that's talked about a lot is sort of educational games and games in the classroom. And all of that is great. But the idea that a game could ever replace a teacher yeah, is, the, yeah. For, for me, that's a non-starter. There are certain things that a human will always do better than any piece of technology. And really all I'm trying to do with the technologies that I'm using and the stories that I'm telling through them is to connect people with ideas mm. and thereby with other people. Yeah. I mean, you said something interesting that really resonated with me a little bit earlier about technology isn't the end all be all. And just because a new shiny technology exists doesn't mean you have to use it. And that's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm a software engineer um, as well as uh creative. I don't even really consider myself an artist necessarily, but um, but that's something that is a pet peeve of mine, even in the technical world, right? That for me, um, the difference between an engineer and a, say, a technician or a developer is um, an engineer understands how to use their tools appropriately. And it's not about the it's not about the science or it's not about the particular programming language. It's about what is the best fit for the job. Um, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. Like you have to be diligent about how you're examining um, the technologies that you're choosing to use and exactly how you're choosing to use them in service of what, you know? Exactly. And I think that I've seen too many projects and ideas over the years in my field that are examples of people having a hammer and therefore looking for a nail. Right. You know, that yeah, you're like, I have this, like I that. have this tool. What kind of problem can I solve with it? And, right. you know, I mean, I think, and, you know, as, as I, I just want to take a moment to mention that um, my views on technology are mine and may not represent all of SFMOMA as an institution, nor is SFMOMA a single monolith. We're actually hundreds of people, many of whom are practicing artists. That's just an aside. But anyway, um, the way that I feel about a lot of development is that thoughtfulness is often missing from the equation. I don't want to say always missing from the equation, but I think that thoughtfulness is often missing from the equation. And, you know, living in San Francisco, I promised myself that I wouldn't go on a rant about the scooters, and I won't go on a rant about. <laughs> I want to hear them. I hate the scooters. I, I, I fucking scooters. I, I call it. Um, uh, my friend <laughs> called it Scooter Gate the other day, which I thought was amazing. But you know, it's just it's what's so interesting to me about the scooters is that it's a physicalized instance of the move fast and break things ethos that led to. You know, Russian hacker bots harvesting our data in advance of the 2016 election. And right. that um, without alienating anybody, because as I said, I respect all people and all approaches. I do feel that thoughtfulness is missing and that specifically thoughtfulness could lead to more 
ethical implementations of new technologies and platforms and could also lead to more sustainable implementations and an inclusiveness, that there's nothing wrong with simple, easy-to-use tools. There's nothing wrong with browser-based programs. There's nothing wrong with websites that just have words. There's nothing wrong with open source anything. And um, I think on the flip side, there's something wrong with proprietariness and there's something wrong with advancement for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I know that was very abstract, but I do think that it gets back to this idea that technology is not an end in itself. It's a vehicle. You know, what's interesting, though, is I'm listening to you talk. There are points in that conversation where I think um, you could substitute the word technology for art and it would still be applicable. Like that's I've heard a lot of similar Mm -hmm. comments being made um, in the art world in terms of, you know, what is intention, um, the, you know, that move fast and break things mentality can sometimes be really applicable to the creative crowd as well, yeah, you know? It it absolutely can be. Well, and I think that this is where, and this is one of the things that, you know, Andrew, you and I have talked about is the idea of the technology world, quote unquote, you know, capital T technology world and capital right. A art world. And the idea that there are these monolithic things called technology and monolithic things called art yeah. are in fact made up of right. human beings, each of whom has their own lived experience. And so I think it's difficult, which is why I'd say, you know, not all, you know, not all projects fit one model. And I think that there is many problematic ethical quandaries inside the art world as there are inside the tech world because there are problematic ethical quandaries inside any industry. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that's so interesting about the sort of perceived bifurcation between tech workers and artists in the city of San Francisco and in the Bay Area as a whole, which I think has much more to do with real estate and land use and the industries surrounding, for example, housing, mm-hmm. than technology as such or art as such. Although I will say, and this is a repeat of what I said at the battery, that it is true that there are two creative classes of innovators when we're talking about technologists and artists, one of whom is much more generously compensated for their time and the other of whom is often expected to give their time and talent in exchange for exposure. Yeah. It's a bizarre and, it's a bizarre phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and it's one thing that actually colleagues uh, in the art world have been working to change. There's an organization in New York called WAGE, which stands for Working Artists in the Greater Economy. Mm. And SFMOMA's online magazine, Open Space, has recently become WAGE certified. And what that means is that they've adopted a standard for paying contributors and people who they commission to do work that is in step with the salary requirements for the Bay Area. So basically wow. paying paying artists what they're worth yeah, and acknowledging that art takes time and talent and experience. You know, it's not quite the same as going to 
dentistry school and then, you know, hanging your plaque. You don't need a degree in order to be an right. artist. I'm going to say this again. You don't need an MFA in order to be an artist. You can, can you actually, say it one more time real you loud? You don't need an MFA in order to be an artist. <laughs> I know a lot of people that have gotten a lot of great things out of MFA programs, and I know a lot of great people who teach at MFA programs, but you can be an artist if you have a marker and a cardboard box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shameless plug here. In one of the in one of our previous episodes, um, Ethan, the the prior host, interviewed the founder of a website called Grandpa, like so, like Grandpa, but with a T because for grants. Um, and it's a really cool service. That's cute, clever, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, but it's a cool service. They you know they basically uh, are a search engine and a discovery platform for finding grants specific to your area as an artist, both geographically and, you know, obviously your medium and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so you should check that out. It's cool. And he did a, a Ted talk that was titled something to the effect of, um, why should artists be poor? You know, mm -hmm. just why, why, why do we have that social construct? You know, I know. I mean, every artist I know is not every artist I know, but a lot of artists I know are making some kind of Compromise, you know, yeah. you a lot of a lot of the artists I know have day jobs, and even if they have gallery representation and are selling work and getting commissions all the time, a lot of the time they still have day jobs. Yeah, and it's challenging. Yeah, you know, and and this is something that is a topic of never-ending fascination for me because I'm an artist myself, and I love my career at SFMOMA, but one of the reasons why I've gone so deep into a career in arts administration is because I've never found a way for capitalism and my art practice to intersect mm. in any manner that felt genuine to me. And that's my solution. That's not everybody's solution. I love it when I have friends who are artists who can support themselves by selling their art or doing public art commissions. I think that's yeah. incredible. But for me, I have to keep my basic survival and my need. I don't even want to say my need for creative expression, because what I've realized more and more recently is that I'm far more invested in being a creative catalyst than I am in my own self-expression. And that's been an interesting shift for me, because I hmm. did do the sort of straight out of art school, be in as many solo shows and group shows as you possibly can. Yeah. Hustle, you know, get your name out there, get your work out there. And what I've realized is that I have just as much fun discussing ideas and implementing group projects or giving somebody else an idea and seeing them run with it yeah. as I do making my own work. And I think that that's a way in which my career at SF Mama has sort of bled into my own personal practice because a lot of what we do at SF Mama is so we do, you know, audio tours, all the video content that's on the SF Mama website and on the YouTube channel. We have a podcast called Raw Material. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> Very nice. But um, we're more executive producers a lot of the time than the hands-on producers. We do some of our own recording and editing, but a lot of it is with talented filmmakers, audio storytellers, sound engineers yeah. outside of our sphere. And I really enjoy collaborating with other people in order to make 
a product. And it's something that's, to me, really interesting about the visual art world is that so many people are solitary practitioners in the visual art world. Yeah. I want to push back, though, because I'm curious. Do you really, like, if you could make as much money, if you could support yourself on your work as an individual artist, um, knowing what you know now and, you know, where your career has gone, what do you think you would end up doing? If I could support myself as an individual artist, what do you mean, what would I end up doing? Like, what kind of work would I make? Well, yeah, because... Well, well you... I mean, I want to be the next Jim Henson, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> no, I, think I, think that, I think that puppetry is an under-recognized medium. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you said a minute ago that uh, that, you know, you've found that you really enjoy the sort of collaborative side and having these conversations um, and you found that you enjoy that as much as, as your personal work. Um, is that true? Like would, yeah. it, it's not just a factor of like you have to have a day job to make ends meet kind of thing. No, I mean, I don't want to spend all my time in the studio by myself anyway. I think that if I were going to, if I were going to leave my job tomorrow and start my own thing, I would probably start some kind of, like punk rock, <laughs> post late capitalist, post occupy like puppet collective, sort of like bread and puppet for the twenty first century. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not necessarily something that I'm interested in trying to sort out the economics of because you know I've lived in the Bay Area for fifteen years now and I've studied a lot of utopian projects. And I find that a lot of the time where utopian projects sort of come up against uh, come up against a barrier is when the utopian ideology has to interface with capitalism and the sort of corporate structure in yeah. some form or another. And, you know, I mean, I said a minute ago, you know, I'd be interested in being the next Jim Henson, and in some ways I would, but it also breaks my heart to think that those properties have been sold to Disney. Yeah. You know, um, at the same time, I have deep respect for Disney and who he was and the types of physicalized storytelling that he piloted. And mm. so it's it's complicated. And um a friend a friend and I like to say again and again that there's no such thing as ethical consumption. Right. And that is true. And huh. so for me, I think that I won't say that I will never professionalize my art practice or my art career and have it be my sort of, you know, basically, I may at some point blend my two worlds. I just don't know how. Yeah. Yet. Do you, do you think... Um... It's a, it's a good good question. You're forcing me to do some real soul searching here. On a... <laughs> this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I poke and I prod until the soul has been searched. All right, everybody. We wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show. And we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love. And it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you please go to sotapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. 
We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. Do you think there is any fear of... Um, so in the hypothetical world where you are a sculptor artist for your day job, do you think that um, there's a fear of it being your job polluting sort of the sanctity and the purity of your connection to it? Eh, you know, I mean, I don't... Not so much. I think that art comes out of the world and the things that I choose to make and the choose the things that I choose to explore in the studio and in my sort of personal intellectual life obviously blend deeply with what I do already at SFMOMA. I mean, I've interviewed at this point hundreds of artists in SFMOMA's collection, including many sculptors. And I can say that being a sculptor myself really helps me sort of channel their practice and figure out what kinds of questions yeah. to ask them and also, you know, what kinds of B-roll to shoot to really tell the most evocative story that I can about their artwork. Um, so I think it's less about that. And frankly, if we're going to go to a really existential place, it's more about requiring some kind of external structure. You know, Aristotle said, you know, give me a place to stand and I can move the world with a, you know, right. I mean, he was talking about levers, but right, right, right. it applies philosophically or Camus said at the beginning of the myth of Sisyphus, um, or I was quoting somebody else and now I don't remember who, of course, but, um, oh, my soul, do not aspire to immortal life, but exhaust the limits of the possible. Mm. And to me, there is nothing harder than a blank page, you know? In the yeah. same way, like getting a blank tile in Scrabble is kind of a burden as well as a blessing. Right. You're like, crap, this could be any letter I want it to be. Uh, if it's less yeah. than 3,000 points, I'm a failure. Yeah, exactly. And so there's <laughs> right. something about boundless potential that is yeah. terrifying and somewhat stifling. And I'm a big believer in creative constraints because of that. And I think because of that and because I'm such a... It's a freewheeling thinker and improvisational spirit. I do require a little bit of structure in order to organize myself. And so I think that if that structure weren't coming from a large institution like SFMAMA, it would have to be coming from some other kind of deeply collaborative relationship because I, on my own, will just keep having ideas forever. Yeah. It's good to know yourself like that, though, right? Like, I mean, I've had to over the years in my um, in my experiences learn that the hard way. Like, you gotta know that. I think creative people have pride in their ability to to keep going and keep innovating, and they crave it. Um, but there is the real world that comes knocking on the door and is like, "Hey, you gotta finish something," or you know, maybe 
maybe we don't spend all night tonight <laughs> staying up when we have a final tomorrow or what, you know, whatever it may be. So Exactly. And um, sometimes structure can be self-imposed. Um, so for example, I think the only time that I haven't had a job and or jobs and or been in school was the summer of 2005 when I was between my first and second years uh, in the sculpture program at the San Francisco Art Institute. And I literally went to dance class every morning and went sailing every afternoon. And so I had a very rigid self-imposed structure because, again, I know myself well enough that I know that without a structure, I'll just go into mm. some crazy nihilist studio cave where I'm, I'm making glittery garbage puppets forever and <laughs> lose all touch with human civilization. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, eight months later you find me and I'm like, hello, Andrew, have you met my friends? This one's name is Mr. Fancy. He's covered in glitter and he has a crown. Oh, I mean, man. But that is actually what my sculpture looks like. So, <laughs> yeah. Now I got to see it. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I'm between websites right now. <laughs> Look, you'll like get I to said, pitch I'm... it at the end. All right. I'll make sure they, they know where to find your, uh, your crazy puppets. Um, so I want to go back actually to something that we were talking, we touched on earlier, but it, it's kind of ringing again in my ear because, um, you know, just the, the, the glittery language that you're using when we're talking about the monolith of art and the monolith of uh, tech as these like, you know, big impenetrable personas, um, one of the things that I think a lot about is that there's this myth that has been built up around uh, around what an artist is, right? And I always say, I think there's a, a lot of people who envision an artist as this like magical, fantastical creature that's, you know, in touch with the universe and oh, we are zenned out, and you know, they're prancing around just like manifesting their emotion onto their medium. Um, I'm curious where you think because you're someone who I think, in some ways, kind of personifies that. Uh, that extreme of the persona. I mean, you're a, you're a very active artist. You're very outspoken about your art um, and about your influence in the art world. But I'm curious where you think that comes from and whether it's reverential to uh, the sort of intangibles that artists seem to have or whether it's a dangerous kind of myth. So I think that here's what I'll say about the myth of the artist is that if you ask a group of kindergartners who in here is an artist, everybody will raise their hand. If you ask a group of 10th graders who in here is an artist, some of them will raise their hand. If you ask a group of 35-year-olds who in here is an artist, you might get one hand raised in most rooms. So somewhere on the journey between childhood and adulthood, we stop feeling empowered as makers or inspired to be makers. And I think that some of it comes from time. Some of it comes from self-judgment and some of it comes from inspiration, from losing the inspiration, maybe. Um, I think that there's nothing uncommon about 
artists other than that they never put down whatever the thing is that people who stopped thinking of themselves as artists put down or lost or yeah put you you stick it in a cabinet somewhere and you say oh you know i used to love to draw when i was 5 but i'm not 5 anymore and i'm not very good at drawing the idea that you're not good at drawing you know what i'm not very good at drawing i love drawing it's one of my favorite things to do mm. and for me i think the years that i was showing in galleries were actually some of the hardest years in my art practice because i stopped thinking of the studio as a place for experimentation with a perspective or a group of materials and started thinking about it in its public-facing dimension. And that is a really easy way to deplete your backstock. Hmm. Then again, some people, you know, you brought up Jeff, you brought up Jeff Koons earlier. Some people, their medium is that attention and bless them if they can do that. That's not that's not my style. That's not my way of being. But some people, the sort of crafting of the persona and the way that they play the game is actually part of their practice. And so the sort of capitalist logic that informs the money-making parts of the art world becomes part of what they do. And for, you know, for Jeff Koons, that's his obsession. And I honestly love him and his work for that or someone like Murakami is another great example of somebody who's figured out or, you know, dating back to Warhol, somebody who's figured out how to commodify themselves in a way that is genuine to them and to their practice. But I think that everybody has the potential for some kind of creative self-expression. And I think a lot of the time what happens is that people get self-conscious, I think there's also a certain amount of disparagement that comes with being an artist or really being in humanities of any kind. I remember um, when I was so I, uh, when I was in college, I was a double major in fine arts and philosophy. And one of my father's partners at his law firm said, oh, that's great. She can be unemployed twice. <laughs> Zing. Zing. Yeah. Or, you know, that thing in The Simpsons, you know, the unemployment line. It's not just for history majors anymore. <laughs> the idea that humanities don't have value. And that's why I am always talking about STEAM, not STEM. You know, that yeah. it's not you you can't have science and technology and engineering and math without art, that artists are really innovative thinkers. And the flip side of that is that Art programs need to start socializing to art students the idea that if they are not practicing in a studio, but they're still practicing critical thinking and improvisation, that they have actually succeeded. Is I think that far too often art schools will value studio practice and a certain kind of success involving gallery representation. And then, you know, and then you're in the Whitney Biennial and then you have your mid-career retrospective and then you're, you know, representing your country at the Venice Biennale. You know, that's not actually most people's trajectory, nor should it be. I know so many great people that have BFAs and MFAs and have gone on to lead perfectly fine lives where they're not practicing or exhibiting as artists anymore because there are so many skills that artists develop that are so much more wide-reaching than 
I don't want to say just making art because I, yeah. there is, to me, uh, going to a museum, going to a gallery or seeing art on the street that somebody made for no reason other than to share it. To me, there's a sort of spiritual ecstasy in that. But I understand, too, that that is a very privileged reaction to get to have that comes from having grown up in New York City and going to museums my whole life. I mean, when I was in high school, the only times I ever cut school were to go to MoMA or one time I cut school to go to Earth Day because the B-52s were playing. <laughs> I was a nice. really hip teenager. <laughs> but, you know, it's not it's not everybody that gets to ditch history class and go look at great works of mid-century modern art. And yeah. so I understand that my connection to art and the way that I feel about it is coming from a really privileged place. And it's the reason why I do what I do at SF Mama is because I've basically dedicated my life to trying to help other people feel about art the way that I do. And not just in their eyes when they're looking at it, but in their bones. Yeah. That's a that's a beautiful notion. Um, and that uh, that actually leads me really well to kind of one of my last questions for you. Why? So one of the things that I think a lot about and one of the things that I want to accomplish uh, ideally on this podcast is hoping to illustrate to people why they should give a shit, why they should care about um, about the world of art. And specifically, uh, visual art is of interest to me because I think that it's so underrepresented in sort of uh, contemporary pop culture as something that is inclusive. You know, everybody's everybody has a favorite band. You know, Yelp helped the foodie revolution become a thing, and now everybody and their uncle is a hobbyist chef and you know, everybody's making plans to like go to France and eat at a Michelin star restaurant. And why do you think it is that um, that visual art kind of gets put in this lofty place in people's minds? And why shouldn't it? Why should they care? Why should uh, why should the tech community uh, pay more attention to this? Hmm. It's a long pause uh, for me. What it out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. If you can just do like five seconds of dead air, like you know, this American lifestyle, we're right, just right, a long right. emotionally really pause, build the tension, really build the tension before I give my amazing answer. Um, so I'm going to talk about this, and then I also want to circle back to talk about games because we didn't really talk about games as much as yeah. I wanted to. So we're going to get back we'll to that. that back so in, I yeah. think the thing that I want to say is that being a good artist is really hard. And part of why being a good artist is really hard is because you're actually dealing with thousands of years of tradition. Do you know how hard it is to be a painter in the 21st century? Think about how many different kinds of painting have existing. Everything that you can think of has happened. And yet there are still people making paintings and doing new things with paintings and saying new things with paintings. So to be an artist is to be an innovator. To be an artist is to be an inventor. To be an artist is to be a remixer. To be an artist is to be an entrepreneur because you don't just have to conceptualize something. You have to fabricate it and then you have to market it. And in today's art world, you don't just have to market the thing. 
You have to market yourself. And the amount of thoughtfulness, creativity, and ingenuity that is required to do all of those different things and wear all of those different hats is incredibly uncommon. And you know, it's funny, but I'm going to go back and tell another story about my lawyer dad and our sort of cultural difference, because one thing that was really fascinating to me was to see his understanding of art practice after I had been in art school for two years and understanding how really hard it is to be a good artist and how much harder it is to be a good artist than it is to be a good pretty much anything else because there's no standardized professional metric that you're working towards. You're inventing it yourself. You're inventing the scorecard and then you're trying to get a perfect 10. And your completion of whatever goal you've set out for yourself is part of it, but the validity of the goal itself is also being analyzed or called into question. And so I think a lot of the reason why folks are perhaps dismissive of visual art is because a lot of these art forms are millennia old. And I think that hmm. perhaps there isn't an understanding that new things can still be said with art and that new things still are being said with art and not just through art that uses new media, but all kinds of art, that new strategies and new perspectives, new ways of communicating with these tools. I mean, think about the, you know, the written word, you know, English language, we've got 26 letters and <laughs> we, we still aren't out of stories. <laughs> right, right. And I think that because these are longstanding traditions, perhaps people are dismissive of them, but perhaps on the flip side, and then this is where someone like me or my department here at SFMOMA would come into play, the ways in which things are presented need to be and are being rethought. And it's really interesting to see in San Francisco in 2018, for example, gallerists getting rid of their brick and mortar spaces entirely in order to move to more of an online and pop-up style gallery business and thinking about ways to present artwork sort of outside of the sanitized white box. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> you know, ask me again next week. Right, I'll probably right, right, have, right, right, have right. a totally different answer. But yeah. well, these I, do, are... I do think that's part of it is, you know, I mean, it goes back to this idea of, you know, technology that new and shiny is always better and right. painting isn't new and shiny anymore. Yeah. You know, except when it is. And I think that that's the thing that people don't realize. And I think that part of it is because they're not, perhaps the concerns seem esoteric. You know, the problem of 21st century painting is not necessarily an accessible problem until it is. Right. Interesting. Interesting perspective. Yeah. It's, I call these uh, the college stoner questions. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> Whoa, wait, so how do you know that you're not asleep right now Right, and that this is a dream? Man, what if my red looks different than your red? Wait, 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 hold up, man, but hold up, man, hold up, man. nobody ever told you. What if I took a urinal 
and put it on its uh-huh. side and signed uh-huh. my name to it. Oh my and God. then I said that the fact that I'd conceptualized it as a work of art made it a work of oh art, Oh my man. God, it is art. Then, it man. is art. Actually, that's a really famous example of conceptual <laughs> art, man. Freaking crazy. And oh, what'll man. blow your mind even more is that the original was destroyed. And so then what we have in the museum is a replica <laughs> of a urinal, man. Blowing my mind, man. Whoa, dude. What is authorship? What is authenticity? What is originality? <laughs> what is objectness? What is thingness? <laughs> this is, look, we're going to take this show on the road. Do things thing? <laughs> Do things thing? I think, oh my God. Do, or when does a do thing when thing? does a thing not thing is the question that I really want to know. Is there a moment when a thing man. stops thinging, man? <laughs> <laughs> if I take a pencil and I use it to twist my hair up into a bun, yeah. is it still a pencil or is it like a hair accessory? Oh, Erica. Oh, Dude. you're blowing my mind, bro. Oh. By the way, I normally feel bad about, uh, I just have a tendency from where I came from to use man and dude a lot, uh, regardless of who I'm talking to. It's okay, girl. I know. That's what, you make me feel so good about it because you call me girl all the time yeah. and I'm like, all right, I don't have to worry about it with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine pointed out that both using man and dude um, and girl are still subscribing to uh, binaries and it's we should true. all just be moving towards things like folks, right. y'all, gender fluidity. Yeah. Yo. Yeah. Hey, yo. <laughs> I'm going to uh, stick with man versus okay, yo. <laughs> uh, and, Andrew, you're my homegirl. <laughs> I like that about you. You're my boo. Yeah. Hey, boo. Just talking about art and objecthood on a Friday afternoon with my boo, Andrew Herm. Oh, man. Andrew Herm in the hizzy. All right. So I was going to flip back and just yes, like, please. I'm just going to talk about games for a minute. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing about games is that they are the highest grossing entertainment industry in the world. They've overtaken film. And yet, uh, from a sort of cultural institutional standpoint, we as cultural institutions are not completely sure what to do with them. There have been some sort of valiant efforts at video game exhibitions. There's the Smithsonian Art of the Video Game Show. The Museum of Moving Image is doing some cool stuff. Mm. And there's a show coming up at the Victoria and Albert Museum on video games, which I think is going to be pretty dope. But that's sort of taking video games and specifically video games and not looking at, you know, all digital games or games as such. And really, when we're talking about games, we're talking about a really ancient medium. We say that games are new because we're talking about computer games and Ataris and Nintendos and phone games and horrible in-app purchases from <laughs> Candy Crush or Candy Crack or whatever it is, right. all, uh, all of that. Um, the thing about games that really interests me is the space in between where games are sort of curated within exhibitions and where they are employed as a means of visitor engagement. And I found that a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, Games in museums have a tendency to be a little edutainmenty in nature. Right, you take right. a quiz or you take a sort of detail hunt and you put a points system on it and right. you're like, cool, I made a game. 
And you didn't actually make a game. You just took a quiz and added a time limit and some points, right. which is basically a quiz because a quiz already has a time limit and some points. <laughs> and so one of the things that I've been doing since 2012 is uh, working with my local creative community to experiment with games as a mode of visitor engagement and try to sort of have games inhabit a dual role where they are a valid form of self-expression because games are actually an expressive medium as much as film or music yeah, or absolutely. any other medium, Sure, but are also helping visitors see the museum and its cultural and intellectual spaces in a new way. Because I believe that games are really important empathy building tools. Like you can watch a video or a film and you can see somebody talk and hear about their life and their perspective. But if you can find a way to make a game where you're actually sharing something of somebody's life and somebody's perspective, and that person is actually living through a series of decisions, a series of choices, a series of steps, then you're creating a story that somebody can live instead of a story that somebody's simply reading or watching. You're creating yeah. a participatory story that can be lived by your audience. And so I think that games have a lot of expressive power as a medium because they can tell stories and share information implicitly as opposed to explicitly. And I think that this sort of gamification or edutainment aspects of learning games um, come largely from a sort of broken Enlightenment era educational model in which yeah. you simply open the student's head and fill it with facts <laughs> until it's full. And then they regurgitate those facts. Right. And facts aren't actually the same as knowledge. And Memorization of facts is not the same as learning. And so I think a lot of so my games initiative is called Play SF MoMA. And we've got a game, game designer in residence series. We've been doing pop-up arcades in conjunction with the Game Developers Conference. And we've been doing game jams and game design challenges. And one of the things that we're trying to do is engage the really powerful but small local indie games community here in San Francisco to bring them into the museum to experiment with games. Because we also, since we're a museum and we have a pretty large visitorship, we have a built-in playtesting audience. And so one of my favorite things to do is to have somebody workshop a game here at the museum and actually playtest it in real time with visitors and oftentimes playtesting uh. is the final deliverable. We don't then publish a game to the app store because, frankly, cultural institutions aren't blockbuster games companies. And right. oftentimes the marketing budget for a big video game or a big digital game is larger than an institution's entire budget. Right. You know, we're, we can't <laughs> we can't possibly play in that space. I'm not going to release something to PlayStation next year. And so... What I'm interested in is giving these game designers a platform to try out ideas with an audience. Because the thing about museum audiences is that they're really fun. They come to the museum because they're interested in having their perspective shifted in some way and experiencing something new in arts and culture. And sometimes they know what they're coming for. They're coming to see, you know, the 
Magritte or the Warhol or whatever. And sometimes they have no idea what they're coming for. They just want to come and see what SF Mama has to offer. And it's really fun to be able to try out a new game that is about a new way of seeing with people who had no idea that they were going to be participating in something completely experimental and outside the box. And so the Play SF Mama stuff has been really fun to do and a great way to engage with the public because in interpretive media, we spend a lot of the time sort of up in the offices making media that then visitors consume either on their home computers or on their phones or down in the galleries. And my favorite thing about my job is going down into the galleries and seeing people engage with my work. You know, seeing somebody watch a video and then turn to their friend and elbow them and say, hey, let's go back and look at that painting again. I'm really fascinated now that I know what that artist's process is. And that's the thing is at the end of the day, it's about people to people. And, you know, the real question to why should people care about art is because artists are people. Artists are amazing weirdos who just figured out how to keep being obsessed with something that they think is cool. And they're just into it. You know, like the expression, you do you. Right. Like they're just doing them and they're doing them so hard in a way that is hopefully distinct from anybody else. And if it's not, then maybe they'll team up and start a revolution. Yeah. You know, you know what my answer to that question is? What's up? It's just cool. Art is cool. Like it's just cool. Like it's oh. just you know, I don't think we need a bigger explanation than that. It's yeah. just it's just cool. People should check it out. It's yeah. fun. It's interesting. I mean, what's that's culture is difficult to define. Yeah. You know, so here's something that I was thinking about the other day, which is when I was like in my early twenties and I had, you know, like classic art life trajectory where I just, I really like painting. I really like drawing. I really like doing like figurative ceramic sculptures, like all of that. And then you get to this point where you discover, you know, you're like 19 years old and you discover conceptual art and you discover all the different forms of abstraction and um, ready-mades and appropriation. And For a lot of people, that's just the end of the road. Like, it just straight up ruins your life because Mm -hmm. you're like, cool. So I love just figure drawing class. Like, I love just figure drawing class. I love just, like, going and there's, like, models and I draw them and I like the poses and it's fun. Like, when I was in, like, I think my first favorite artist was Monet and then my second favorite artist was Rodin. It was the figurative stuff. And then Rauschenberg and... Then I don't know. There was like a long time where I had too many favorite artists to count. And now I honestly think that my favorite artist might be Jim Henson, um, <laughs> early Jim Henson. Yeah. Um, but I went on a tangent. But the point is that, you know, when I was getting all hung up and going through all of this, I was actually out here visiting a friend and we were taking the bus out to the Legion of Honor. And I was talking about all my hangups. And he was like, Erica, you just need to step back from all of this because what you need to realize is that art is magic. And that's the thing that's at the core of it is when you go into the studio and make something and it doesn't matter what you're making, when you go into the studio and you make something or when you just sit down at your kitchen table and you make something because you also don't need a studio to be an artist. I'm going to say it again really slowly. Right. You don't need a studio to be an artist. Drop the mic. Okay. (laughs) But um, 
the thing is, when you make art, you're creating something that didn't exist before. So I go into the studio, I make like a weird garbage puppet out of junk that I found at scrap or that was like left over from a party that I threw or something. And then I made something that didn't exist before. It's there in the world. And then here's the thing that's freaking crazy about it is that then there's this thing that came out of your brain and your hands that's in the world. And then you can show it to other people and then you can talk about it with them. Yeah. And they can see things in it that you didn't even mean to. Yeah. That's the thing that I love about art is that once it's out there, it belongs to everybody. It's yeah. not just yours anymore. Art is magic. <laughs> Making art is magic. Looking at art is magic. Talking about art is magic. That's going to be the title of this podcast, art by the way. Magic. Art is magic. If you can also just um, like sparkle emoji, art right. is magic. Sparkle emoji. <laughs> of course. I mean, I'd have it no other way. All right, Erica, before we go, I have to, of course, bring you through our rapid fire section. Sure. So I'm going to ask you four questions and you just got to fire back what comes to the top of your head. All right. Kay. All right. What is your biggest pet peeve? Oh my God, those fucking scooters. <laughs> oh. Good. Glad. We, we, we already went over that. Great. <laughs> uh, who do you most want to meet, dead or alive? If I say Jim Henson again, it's a cop out. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, I'm like, I want to meet Angela Davis. I want to meet um, Jesus. <laughs> All good celebrities. And Salvador Dali. <laughs> he seems like he'd be fun to hang out with. I like it. I like cool. it. I okay. like that Jesus was in the middle of the list. Yeah. The <laughs> I don't know. I just want to be like, hey, you know, like, first of all, um, sorry. Yeah, I'm like, first of all, I want to see what color his skin is, because right. I'm pretty sure that um, it's not the color that not, a lot of people think it white. is. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Um, I'm pretty right. sure Jesus didn't use sunscreen. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they said he was homely in the Bible, too, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, uh, oh, oh, wait. Um, oh, Are you having a again. vision now? <sighs> Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin. Oh my God! Yeah, I'm like it's it's between Jim Henson, Ursula Le Guin, and Jesus. <laughs> All right, next question. Mm -hmm. uh, with those three people that you want to meet, uh, what car do you want to drive them in? What's your dream car? I want to take them on a sailboat. Fuck a bunch of cars. <laughs> All right. Well, because the question was car, I'm just going to assume that you're going to put wheels on it and drive the sailboat around town, if that's okay. I'm going to sail the sailboat around town. <laughs> exactly. I love okay. it. Okay. Um, my dream car, I want to like, I mean, honestly, so I'm in like a camper van with Ursula Le Guin, Jim Henson, and Jesus. Right. Okay, camper okay, van. Winnebago? Yeah, yeah, like a Winnebago. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. And last <laughs> question is, you wake up at two in the morning and stumble into the kitchen. What is the first thing you grab for a midnight snack? I don't really eat midnight snacks. I don't know, water. In this scenario, you're eating a midnight snack. Okay. In this scenario, I'm eating a midnight snack. <laughs> um, I make really good popcorn. I pop it in coconut oil. I put some butter on it. It's the best thing ever. And yep. so I'm going to have to go with popcorn. That sounds Homemade, amazing. home popped, stovetop only. <laughs> Air pop is for suckers. Popcorn. <laughs> Erica, it is awesome to talk to you. I love. I, I'm. I feel privileged to call you a friend. 
Uh, Likewise, it's, Andrew. It's so much fun. I wish that our viewers could be in the room with you. You just ooze and emote your passion for what you do in the art world. I hope that that comes through the microphone. I bet it will. I feel it really hard. Please care about art more, everybody. <laughs> it's everything to nerds like me. So, and we're <laughs> worth listening to, as you know, because you just finished this episode. Good right, for you, right, Gold right, right. Star. You're, yeah, you're already on the winning team. All right. So very last thing before you go, where can yeah. we find you? Promote yourself. Get some likes. Get some okay, follows. So um, our podcast is called Raw Material. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. Raw Material. Uh, the games program you can find if you go to sfmama.org slash games. And our videos you can find also on sfboma.org slash series slash artist dash interviews, or you can also just go to youtube.com slash sfboma. Awesome. And I um, am between websites right now, but stay tuned for a sparkling clean com coming soon to an internet near you. Very nice. And we are state of the art. Thank you so much, Erica. And uh, we'll catch you around the block. Thanks, Andrew. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. So this was a review. This is an old episode. How do you think I did? How was my first outing? Have I done better? Let us know. Get a hold of us on uh, Instagram or Twitter at State of the Art. And uh, as always, if you like this episode or if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, please, if you could help us out, the best thing you could do is give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us grow, helps us find more interesting users who like what you like, and uh, that would be so helpful for us. So thank you so much. This has been another episode of State of the Art.